The Ponch Stevenson Show. PonchStevenson.com. Episode 203. Sunday, September 30th, 2012. This is The Ponch Stevenson Show. PonchStevenson.com. Episode 203. I am Rob. You are Greg. Yes. And go, go, gadget podcast. Gadget. Gadget. So, what should we start off with? I don't know. We could start off with another reason I hate George Lucas. (laughs) Go to Wikipedia really quick. I want to point something on. It's a a Paunch Stevenson show update. This is is a, a, a off to a great stop. I'm off to a great stop. Oh, no respect. <gasps> I got no respect. I kill me. That's, no, that's Alf. Rodney Danger. Come on. Uh, Peter Cullen. Now, in episode 200, we had Esteban as a guest. Esteban. And we talked about the age of Frank Welker and Peter Cullen. Yeah. So? So... We looked them up, and and I guess we said whatever age Peter Cullen was. But then a few weeks ago, for some reason, I went back to Peter Cullen's Wikipedia page. And even though it's not saying it now, a few weeks ago when I looked it up, there was some uh, question about his age. They didn't know what year he was born. (laughs) I guess they cleared it up. So he's born in 1941. He's 71 years old. Isn't that what we said? He was 70 at the time? His birthday hadn't come yet, I know, yet, but so. a few weeks ago there was like, he could be 71, or maybe oh, he's 74. God. Whatever. I just thought that was kind of a... You know, it was like when we, uh, many episodes ago, like when we went to Pat Cooper's page and it said he was Pat dead. Pat Cooper! Yeah. So someone, someone was messing with the Wikipedia page. Oh, I see. Whatever. I'm Peter Cullen. <clears throat> Alright, so, uh... Autobots, transform and roll out. I thought you were made of sterner stuff. So why do I hate George Lucas this time? <laughs> so I'm I'm looking at they had this Star Wars celebration, which they have every couple of years, like this big convention. Okay. Um, and so the big thing they announced there was another Star Wars animated show. It's called Star Wars Detours. What? Basically what this thing is, it actually involves the original trilogy. So it was when I heard that, I was like, oh, wait a minute. Well, that, that, that could be good. That could be good. And then I saw some of the clips. Oh, boy. Essentially, this, it's like a comedy. Now, um, wait a minute, wait a minute. How come... Where are all Yankovic's in this? If they if there is a Star Wars animated show, why can't they just do regular two-dimensional hand-drawn animation? Why does it always have to be computer? Well, graphic? it's got to be. C- well, they got all the CGI machines there. They might as well make yeah, use of them. There you go. That's anyway. True. It's see. I don't care that it's CGI. Wait, Seth Green is involved. <laughs> it's it's robot chicken. <laughs> what? Basically, it's a robot chicken guy, Seth Green. Yeah, I know, but this is officially sanctioned by George Lucas. Yes. <laughs> basically what it is, it's like a comedy. So basically what it is, it's like, I'll have to show you a clip. Basically, uh, you know, let me just show you a clip. So I, wait, I think wait, this is Donald the only way. Donald Faison, Weird Al Yankovic. Oh, Billy D. Williams is in it as Lando. Billy D. Williams. Co- 
Forty five. Zachary Levy. The, the idiot who played oh that's the truck guy. Yeah. Breckenmeyer. Meyer. No, he's in there. The idiot that played Jar Jar Binks. Oh Anthony Daniels, who was C three PO. I mean, what else is he doing? Oh, yeah. And Weird Al. I don't know. Joel. Oh, Joel McHale's in it. Yeah. I don't know what Weird Al's doing. Um, Whose voice will he be? Who knows? Maybe the Emperor. I don't know. All right, so I'm gonna. I don't know. I mean, these are just these are equally bad. Here we go. This is Chewbacca and and Han Solo. What? Why are they drawn like that? Wait, 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 wait. How do you raise the? Is this all the volume goes? Or? Yeah, these speakers are terrible. All right. Hey, Chew! I'm back, uh. <laughs> you get it? All I ask is two minutes so that I can put my things down. What do you mean, late for dinner? Whoops. Now, to be fair, salad starts cold, so uh, I can't really get cold. Yeah, it looks very healthy, but, um. Lando and I kind of made a run to Kessel for some rebos. Okay, I'm sorry. Let's start over. Tell me about your day. Of course I've got sand on my boots. It's Tatooine. Well, nobody asked you to vacuum my ship. <laughs> Wait, come on. That came out wrong. Chewie, come on. Get in the Falcon. I can't. I gotta stop it. Yeah, I can't take this. It's like... It's like uh, if Star Wars were done, you know, like Family Guy style. But it's not funny. Family Guy is funny. Well, yeah. But you know what I mean? It's like, it's like this day-to-day -day bickering. I, I understand that, but the difference is like Family Guy is like insane and off the wall. You know, like The right. Simpsons. That this, this, is, is just, this is just casual conversation. Oh, this, is, this is absolutely appalling. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, it's... it's it's CGI wise, it looks really cool. Well, but it's, it's very cartoony. Yeah, it's cartoony, but it's this is appallingly bad. <laughs> and I just I can't I can't take oh, it. Oh, you made me dinner. What did you make? Salad? Uh, the salad looks good. It's sand, you know, we live on ta it's like uh, It's like knock knock, who's there? Uh, the uh, Han. Uh, Han who? Uh, Ben. Huh? Ben. Ben who? Ben. <laughs> oh, God, Ben who? Where's Ben who? Where's Ben who? All right. Uh, so that's awful. Let me see what I... Star Wars Detour. When does this come on? Star oh, Wars Detours. I don't know. Who cares? All right. I have no idea. Awful. Welcome to the point even in show. This is the Paunch Stevenson Show, paunchstevenson.com, and we have a very, very special guest on the podcast today, Mr. Bob, <laughs> Mr. Bob Budiansky. Am I pronouncing that correctly? One of the two accepted ways of pronouncing it. I'll accept it. Okay. <laughs> I told you. Budiansky is preferred. Budiansky is acceptable. Okay. The only reason I ask is because I thought it, it would be Bob Budiansky, but I was watching a video online and the person kept pronouncing it Budiansky. Well, so, like I said, either way is acceptable. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being a guest. Sure. My pleasure. 
We just have a few questions for you. And Greg, why don't you start off? Um, so first of all, uh, I think, you know, in case anyone doesn't know, uh, Bob is a, a comic book uh, artist and a writer. And you worked f- uh, many years for Marvel Comics. Yes. Um, and I guess, you know, at least for us, we're, we most know you well known from uh, creating the Transformers comics and basically as well the Transformers uh, uh, product line in terms of the uh, uh, descriptions of the characters that Hasbro used. Okay, that's correct. <laughs> I guess. I mean, yeah, okay, I did all that, yeah. Yeah. Um, I know that you, 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 you're always getting asked about Transformers. Um, for all these years, but I don't know, maybe you've never been asked before, but um, in terms of like working with Hasbro and their product lines, were they like really, I don't want to say pushy, but it did you feel like you, you know, artistically you could kind of come up whatever you wanted and, and they were okay with that? Because the only reason I ask is because it seems like nowadays they're like very, 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 very uh, hands-on with all of their like toy properties that go to other medium. Well, I can't talk about today because I'm not doing this kind of material today. Back in the 1980s when I was working with Hasbro, uh, they were very easy to work with. I would say easily 90 to 95 percent of the material that I submitted for their approval, they approved happily. Maybe we were all very innocent and naive in those days, and we didn't know better, or they didn't know better to you know, tighten the screws and exert more control. But I, I think since I was there, almost from the beginning in the development of the Transformers, they, uh, they had a lot of trust in my instincts about where to take things. I mean, obviously, we had conversations along the way about what they had in mind, and I would, incorp- I would certainly incorporate that into what I was developing. But generally, um, I had a lot of a lot of leeway as far as de- uh, coming up with names and developing uh, character personalities, and also uh, when necessary, uh, coming up with uh, extensions of the basic uh, story treatment that uh, you know that was the underpinnings of the universe. Okay, um, I had a question. Yeah, um, this is Rob. So when when you were I guess, assigned this uh, project, was it something like, like, oh, sure, I'll just work on this. It's, it's just another project, just like any other project. Or, or did you approach it? I really want to make something special that's, that's going to last, you know, 20, 30 years. <laughs> uh, listen, um, you know, I, I, I'd been working for Marvel for, I think at that time, about seven years in different capacities. And uh, these kind of projects popped up uh, with more and more frequency, and I could say honestly that you know I don't know if this project would last more than the weekend, let alone you know thirty years. So um, you just couldn't tell. You, know, you didn't know what the company was bringing to the table. You didn't know um, you know how the audience for that product, in this case the toy line, how the audience for that product would respond to it. I remember one Hasbro executive once told I me mean, I was new to the toy business. It wasn't my was my area of expertise. I remember once a Hasbro executive said to me, any toy that lasts two years is considered a success in our industry. So, you know, with that, with those kind of odds against most toy lines, you know, that new toy lines that are rolling out, that most of them don't even last two years, who would imagine that the 
going to last as long as it did. I certainly didn't. Um, the, the, probably the, um, the, the, the renaissance of the Transformers that began in, I guess, in the, the 1990s, uh, when I, you know, which I was only vaguely aware of for many years, I, I was as surprised as anyone. I was, you know, it's like, okay, the Transformers came and they went, they kind of faded out in the early eight, in, in the latter part of the 80s, and um, hey, that was a good run for a toy line, that's the way I looked at it. So, um, but the other part of your question, uh, you know, did I look at it, did I look at it as just another job? Um, I, I've I've told the story before, so you know you might have you might have seen it somewhere on an interview or or on, yeah, yeah. The, the way the Transformers came to me. I was an, I was a staff editor at Marvel. I was mostly known as a as an artist editor, and uh, at the time the editor in chief was Jim Shooter, and he was desperately looking for somebody to take over developing these characters, and there was a, a deadline fast approaching, and I was maybe his third or fourth choice because everybody else down. You know, all, all these editors who had more writing experience that Jim approached uh, before me um, turned it down. They, you know, for whatever reason, they turned it down. Uh, and then I replaced, um, well, the first person that had developed the characters was a senior editor. I don't want to mention names, but whatever reason, his character names didn't fly. And that's when Jim Shooter eventually approached me to take it over. So I literally had a you know, since the, since uh, the job had already been been grinding through the process of being developed for however long it was before I got a hold of it, um, I literally had to develop twenty six character names and profiles over a weekend, uh, right before Thanksgiving uh, in November of eighty three. So that, that that initial batch of twenty six characters, uh, you know, when you said before, you know, you uh, it was just another job. Well, it was just another rush job, and that wanted to show my boss, Jim Shooter, that I had a, I had some some right chops as well as some uh, some illustration chops. So um, so I did as good a job as I could and he liked it and we submitted it to Hasbro and material for those first characters. Um, I came up with names at least had been developed by the uh, person who preceded me. Prime being the most obvious and well-known example of, of some of the uh, other other writers' uh, work that survived. <laughs> One question I had was, um, I, I remember when I was a kid, I had I would buy some of the uh, Transformers comics, and I, I know you've explained this before that um, you you kind of went on a different tangent with the characters and the stories than they were doing on the uh, cartoon. Um, but I like to think of it that they went on a different task. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was always, yeah, I mean, that was always kind of weird that, you know, we would read it and be like, you know, what, you know, how come there's no Galvatron in this? And, and <laughs> well, maybe that was a good thing, but, um, but I, one thing I always remembered about those Transformers comics was, and I guess this was just the, the, the way the comic industry was at the time. Um, was that the actual, like, the illustrations were, you know, were very good and all that, but it, it just, all the comics were always, like, the, there was not very many colors that they would print on the pages. They would do it on the cover, but, like, the pages were, they always seemed like they were devoid of color. Uh, and, and then they got a lot more color in the books, I guess, as they got into the 90s and all. I mean, was that, like, you know, was it ever, like, was it a, just, was it a cost thing? <laughs> yeah. Well... First of all, I was the writer. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so, but you're you're also an artist. Yeah, I was the artist on um, on various um, aspects of the Transformers. I designed most of the covers over the years. I drew some of the covers, uh, but the coloring was a completely different issue. We had, um, I think, one cover one colorist. Uh, I think stuck with the book for mo for most of the run that I was on. His name was uh, Nell Yontov, who was also an editor at Marvel at the time, and. Um, one thing about the comics back then, you know, and you, if you if you read comics then and you saw how they developed uh, in the 90s to having a much broader color palette, um, you know, the, the colors were limited. And on a comic book like Transformers, the feeling and I, you know, I, I, I don't want to I don't want to say to say this too definitively because, uh, you know, Nell Yomtov had his ideas of coloring. He worked for an editor. He did not work for me. So the editor at the time had his ideas of coloring. Uh, but just, you know, just my experience of being at Marvel and also being an editor and overseeing colorists on books that I edited. Um, as much as you would like to color every little detail and every little character, if you do that, uh, especially with that limited palette, it becomes like a jumble. You know, like you, you don't focus on the prime, uh, the prime thing to focus on in that particular panel or comic book or whatever. So, if there's a couple of characters in the foreground, yeah, they're going to get like full color treatment usually. But if there are eight characters in the background, then they might get what's called knocked out, meaning they'll just be colored blue or moon mm. or something. Like show that they're there, but they're in the background. And we don't want their coloring to come forward and interfere with the foreground. You know, nowadays, if you a comic book, not only are the colors far more, um, far more wide ranging and sophisticated, uh, but even the black layers of the, of the color, the, the inks that are going into comic books get grayed out to um, create a sense of depth. So the foreground characters might be really solid black, and then the colorist might take it upon himself to um, gray out some of the background shapes to make them fade into the background. That just wasn't available to us. So colorists had to do all these tricks, and the background elements would fade into the background. And one way was to minimize the number of colors that sometimes you'd see in the background. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I was going to ask you about, you did, you actually created the comic book uh, Sleepwalker. Yes. Uh, I believe that was in the early 90s. Yes. Um, and now the Sleepwalker was, uh, it was a, a an adult, uh, like a teenager or something, and he was somehow possessed by an alien. Yes. Right. And um, and then it, so at night when I guess when he went to sleep, the alien would like take over and he would you know, fight the bad guys. OK, that's uh, one way to explain it. Yeah, just the gist of it. Sure. For the layman's. OK. Uh, no, so I, I, what I was going to ask was, um, was, was your inspiration some kind of like, uh, I don't know, maybe like. The, the whole alien kind of folklore or just said, ah, you know what? I'm just going to make him an alien. Actually, my inspiration um, was a comment that uh, at this point, my former editor-in-chief boss, Jim Shooter, he was no longer editor-in-chief at Marvel, but a comment he had made years earlier. Uh, I don't know how well, well you're acquainted with Jim Shooter and his career, but uh, he started writing comics when I think he was like 13 years old or something like that. I uh, started writing um, uh, comics for DC Comics, mostly Superman and Superboy comics, a lot of Legion and superheroes. So what he would often say, you know, this is years later when he was at Marvel and he was editor-in-chief, what he would say on, on one or two occasions was, um, 
you know, if Superman really existed, if there was a real Superman in the world, rather than everybody, um, all these nations of the world greeting him as, a, as this wonderful savior kind of a figure, they would use all of their defense budgets to, to guard against him because they, were, they wouldn't be sure of what he would do to them. You know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't trust him. They'd be paranoid. You know, it was an interesting point of view. Yeah, like we kind of accept the fact that, you know, super, Superman is a, is a force of good and he wouldn't, he wouldn't intentionally hurt anybody who was innocent or, or, or try to take over the world or something. But you know, it was an interesting take. So anyway, inspired by that, that little germ of an idea, I wanted to do the anti-Superman. I wanted to bring a superhero character to Earth who was a bug-eyed alien. You're, you're kind of almost, stand, I mean, literally had bug eyes, you had, uh, multifaceted uh, eyes that you see on a bug. Um, so I designed the character, I gave him green skin, I made him look alien, kind of creepy, and um, but he had the best of intentions. Uh, so when he shows up, when, he, when his host falls asleep and Sleepwalker shows up, Basically, people's initial response was horror. Like, there's, there's a monster among us. You know, run for the run for run for your lives. So that was the inspiration behind Sleepwalker. Cool. I have a question. Um, could you maybe uh, just like take a minute and tell us what? Because Greg and I, you know, we're we're very into pop culture. We like behind the scenes things. Okay. Could you just describe for a minute what was the atmosphere like working at? Marvel Comics throughout the 1980s, 1990s? Was it very, like, suit-and-tie business? Was it casual? I, I, I would say it was, depending on what floor you worked on. <laughs> okay. I mean, was it like you can come in at, like, noon and stay till midnight and do whatever you want, or was it very structured and corporate? No, again, depending on what floor you worked on, there was the editorial floor, and then there was the the business functions, you know, licensing and uh, legal and uh, uh, publicity and all that. So I'm just going to talk about editorial. That's what you're interested in. Um, as an editor, it was very casual. But people, you know, people took their, their job seriously, but it was generally a fun, creative atmosphere. Uh, I worked with a lot of great people. Um, you know, we were given a lot of latitude. You know, we were, we were, we were again, with some exceptions, you know, we were trusted to to get our jobs done, get the books out, you know, hire the right people for the books. Of course, there was always people overseeing us. Um, you know, there was an editor-in-chief, the editor-in-chief had a boss, et cetera, et cetera, it had a corporate structure. You know, it wasn't like um, we were completely running around out of control. <laughs> right. It appeared that way a couple of times <laughs> on occasion. But um, but generally, you know, we had a, you know, it was, a, it was a great atmosphere to work in for most of the time I was up there. And it certainly wasn't a, a suit-and-tie kind of place, not, not the floor that I worked on. And what, you know, you said like the editor-in-chief had a boss and that person had a boss. What was the ultimate boss of the entire company, Stan Lee? <laughs> <laughs> Once upon a time, that was true. But Stan moved out to the West Coast in the late 70s, I believe, and, you know, had other um, responsibilities. And, you know, he was basically pursuing the Hollywood dream of uh, making Marvel into big-time big, big movies and so on and TV shows. So... The ultimate boss became more of a corporate, you know, we had a president of the company. I mean, it changed over the years. Marvel, as you probably know, changed ownership through the 80s and 90s a couple of times. Um, but the editor-in-chief reported to the publisher. The publisher reported to the president of the company. The president of the company, I guess, reported to the board of directors once the company went public. 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was just a, you know, just a traditional corporate structure. But generally, as an editor, uh, you know, we, we reported to the editor-in-chief. Sometimes we'd meet with the publisher. But generally, you know, we didn't get involved with all that corporate overhead that was on the floor above us. You know, that was, you know, that was something else. I got involved only because I did, a, I did a lot of work with our licensing department, like Transformers, for instance. Yeah. I had a lot of interaction, probably more than most of the editorial staff, uh, with, with some of the other departments. Um, well, speaking of Stan Lee, I actually read uh, while we were doing some research for our interview that you actually received a fan letter from Stan Lee. <laughs> yes, I was <laughs> like one of the highlights of my career at Marvel, getting a fan letter from Stan Lee. Yeah, he read... He read one of the issues of uh, Transformers. It was called Decept Decepticon Graffiti, and he wrote a letter, which we published, of course, in the in the letter column. <laughs> that must have been surreal. Yeah, yeah, it was great. You know, it was terrific. I mean, did he call? Did he call you a web slinger? I, I don't think that was in the letter. He didn't. He didn't address me specifically. You know, it was uh. a fan letter to that particular issue, and he, you know, whatever he said, he liked the story or or, or something like that. But uh, you know, I was just really happy that he even. You know, had the time to pick up the comic book and read it, let alone you know write a letter about it. I was pretty uh, pretty flattered by that whole episode. So, so did you ever get a chance to meet Stanley or? No? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh. And I met on many occasions. And once um, uh, uh, the entire editorial staff went out to the San Diego convention in the early '80s, and we and Stan invited us all over to his house for a barbecue. That was really nice. Um, Stan actually worked for me. I edited a book that he wrote. Um, uh, as a, I was special projects editor, so we were doing, uh, I think it was a character he was trying to develop for animation or something. So I wound up editing one issue or a couple issues of a comic book. Sorry. <laughs> that's the dog that you were uh, warning <laughs> be, be sometimes uncooperative dog. But my dog is sitting next to me very quietly. He's, he's, he knows I'm on, uh, I'm on the air. Anyway, um... So Stan, um, you know, so Stan and I worked together in that in editorial writer capacity. You know, of course, as being Stan Lee, I kind of was as as hands off as I possibly could be. You know, he he knows what he's doing. Maybe I maybe I added a comma here or there. That's about it to his script. Um, but anyway, yes, yeah, so I I mean I met Stan and he's a you know, great guy to work with. Now, in terms of obviously, you've worked on many projects uh, throughout the past several decades. Is there one or two particulars that are your favorite? See, well, I, I, I'd say, you know, three things stand out. I mean, I, I worked for Marvel in different capacities over, for over a 20-year period. I did a lot of stuff. I edited comic books. I was the creative director of their uh, retail poster line, or the creative director of their trading cards for, like, the first five years of that program. Uh, I, I was an artist. I was a writer. So, you know, there were, there were a lot of highlights. You know, uh, the, I, I, I think there were three things I enjoyed the most. There, I, was, um, I, was an artist, I was the artist for Ghost Rider for several years, um, several years for the covers, and only about a year and a, a little less than a year and a half for the interior of the book. I enjoyed doing that. Um, I enjoyed doing the Transformers until I burnt out on it, you know, <laughs> desperate to get off of it. Um, after, so I did, I did that for about five years. And, um, and then creating a Sleepwalker, you know, actually creating a brand new character and getting Marvel to agree to publish it was an accomplishment. And, um, you know, we had a little bit of success that lasted a couple of years. So I was really happy about that. So uh, those were the highlights. You know, I don't know if one 
rates over the other, but those are all big highs. Well, I'd like to thank you for doing the trading cards because I used to collect them when I was a kid and those were, I think Impel released them. And they were awesome. I love the fact that they, you know, each each character had his own card or many cards. They had like stats on it. And I was I always loved those kinds of things. Because you know, it was kind of like Transformers where every character, like you'd buy the toy and it had those, um, you know, the statistics and all that on the back. And Yeah, so you know my style now. You see, I did it on Transformers. I did it on yeah. trading cards. You know, my, you can recognize my stuff. But to give credit where credit is due, that came from the Marvel Universe books. That Mar that Mark Runewald was um, was in charge of. He's the one who invented those um, those kind of uh, tech specs for all the superhero characters. So if you go back and you read uh, Marvel Universe books from the early '80s, that's where that was that thought process of you know, adding that kind of information was was, uh, was originated. So uh, Bob, recently you've you've been getting more into I guess uh, the the graphic arts or graphic design. Uh, what have you been up to recently? Well, I've been out of comics, you know, uh, on a, you know, I was full time into comics until uh, early '96, and over the years, I've been a graphic designer. I've done some uh, illustration commissions, and uh, I'm also the director of recreation for the town that I live in. So I've been juggling a bunch of different things. I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, like the recreation part of my my life keeps me fairly busy, but um, I've, I worked for a while for Scholastic. Uh, as a as a creative director, as an assistant creative director there, I did a lot of graphic design for them. Uh, until recently, I was still doing a lot of graphic design freelance for them, and um, that's you know that's kind of what I've been up to. Cool. Actually, I worked at Scholastic too for for a few years. So we yeah, you mentioned that, and you worked with somebody I used to work with. You said right? Yeah, Matt and Glenn. Yeah, Glenn was my assistant at Marvel. Oh, really? Yes. Oh man, I'm gonna have to talk to him about that. That's cool. Yeah, what Glenn owes me, and, and like I'm still waiting for that check. But uh, <laughs> I got him his job at Marvel, and I got him his job at Scholastic. Huh, so he he owes you two now. Yes, and I told him <laughs> the next job he gets, he's on his own. You know? <laughs> so yeah, he owes me. Anyway, but he, Glenn's a great guy. So is Matt. Yeah, yeah, yeah they were nice. Yeah. Um, I had one more question. Um, Silly question, but do you ever get tired of getting asked the same questions over and over? Uh, not really. You know why? Because I, I've gotten a lot of practice at it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the first time I was interviewed, which was probably, you know, I don't know, six or eight, ten years ago, whenever it was, a lot of this stuff was not fresh in my memory. So I had to like really dig deep and try to come up with answers for a lot of these questions but you know as these questions do get repeated occasionally i mean you, you came up with a couple of different angles which was good but still there's a lot of overlap with all these interviews so now like uh, it kind of rolls off my tongue oh yeah i know that I, I know what i did to you know come up with that character or or you know that storyline or whatever you know some of it comes back anyway so uh yeah i don't mind i don't mind i, I enjoy these interviews and actually all right, i have one more question and we'll let you go but one more question is well a, are you still uh, in any way into comic books? And if you are, would you say uh, the industry is different or, or even like the, the, the fans or, you know, the whole collecting is different now than it was in the 1980s, early 1990s? Well, I'm barely into comics in, in the sense that I'm doing commit, private commissions. I'm not working for any major comic book companies at the moment. 
and uh, I don't really follow them. You know, I, 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 I pick up information on the Internet. There's a couple of websites I might check on occasion. Um, so I'm, I'm really on the peripheral of things. But as far as, I mean, one thing I can comment, comment on is that um, the industry is vastly different from, um, from the 1980s uh, just because it's such a niche market these days compared to what it used to be. Uh, you know, now my impression is like, you know, a comic book that's a big seller sells like 40 or 50,000 copies or something like that. And, uh, you know, back in my day, that would have been canceled. <laughs> yeah. You know, my, I, I love telling this story because usually it like really freaks people out. When I was drawing Ghost Rider, I came aboard um, and we, we pumped sales up to about 120, 125,000 a month. And, um, and then the sales started dropping. And when they dropped to about 105000 a month, the decision was made to cancel the book because of low sales. <laughs> wow. Okay. Now, where would 105,000 copies a month put a comic book these days? Probably in the top three or something? Yeah. You know? Uh, and that was a month. That wasn't, just, that wasn't because of like a special uh, crossover promotion or some, you know, some, something to get people's attention that, you know, Superman's kissing Lois Lane, mm-hmm. uh, Superman's kissing Wonder Woman on the cover or something like that. That was just a regular, ordinary, everyday, monthly ghostwriter comic book. It wasn't even a great, you know, the um, the A the A team. It was the B team or the C team. Yeah. So that's where the difference is. It's such a vast audience back then doesn't exist anymore for just about any comic book you can name. You know, there's so that's where the difference is. Uh, and also, um, you know, back then Marvel made its money by selling comic books. Right. Clearly, Marvel's making its money in the movies. Movies and licensing and anything but the comic books. I really don't know what you know what the dollars are that, that are brought in by the comic books, but you know the comic books are really um, uh, uh, you know like the, the the laboratory from which they, they can you know experiment and come up with the the next franchise. Uh, you know, and I, I'm I'm assuming that DC Comics you know looks at their, uh, you know Warner Communications looks at DC Comics in a very similar manner that you know they only exist to serve. Other other media, not so much the comic books themselves. So, um, so that's where the real difference. Yeah, it's all collectible now. Whereas in the past, it was there was actual continuity where people would read the same comic for you know ten, fifteen years because the story would be progressing more or less. And now it's just there's seventy five different Spider Mans and well, they keep rebooting. Oh, the rebooting parallel universe. Uh, <laughs> out of control and that, that that's unfortunate because it seems to me and, and you know you might know more than me if you're following it that the the most creative thing that companies can do these days is take a character that is successful by today's standards and come up with another comic book on that character um whereas you know you you go back a few decades you don't you really you know this has been going on for a while and new new books with new characters would be introduced on a fairly regular basis some would hit and some wouldn't, but you know you you would have an opportunity to at least try something. Transformers is a great example of that. You know, I mean, Transformers. I think what Transformers was before before it showed up as a comic book. Um, so, so there, you know, there 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 was a there was an opportunity to, to try new things. And now, like you said, they just take the old things and they reboot it and they tell the origin all over again out with three other monthlies of the same, you know, Superman or Batman or Spider-Man or whatever you want to call, you know, whatever character it is. And it's very hard to come up with a brand new idea that's going to sell. When you were around in the 80s, I know they didn't do this, but were you still involved when they started doing this in the 1990s where 
you know, it wouldn't just be like, here's the new issue. It would be like, well, here's the new issue in a blue plastic bag. Here's oh. the new issue in a black <laughs> plastic bag. Here's the new issue with a foil cover. I, I was there at the dawn of that era. Oh, believe me, that was, as editors, we were, we were getting, we were getting uh, pressure all the time from our sales department and, and uh, uh, you know, marketing department. You know, can we do a plastic cover? Can we do a chrome cover? Can we do, this? you know, like we were... And I designed some of those covers when I was uh, running Spider-Man. Um, oh, that was that was a big deal, you know. That was like, yeah, let's find let's find a way to get a fan to get a, a collector to buy five different versions of the same comic book. Uh, and you know, I think uh, I think it ultimately hurt the market because uh, first of all, all those special issues cost more money than a regular issue. Yeah. So what you're doing is you're driving away the more casual uh, comic book fan. Yes, and the younger comic book fan, they can't afford that, you know. They just want to buy their regular comic book every month for the same price. They don't want to spend double the price to get a fancy cover or something like that. So um, I think that helped hollow out the, the base of the comic book market, you know. So you you, you, you lost your, your more casual fans and, you, and your younger fans, and you kind of, you know, left with a smaller base to uh, build upon. And it never recovered. Yeah, well, I think that was only one factor. I think there were probably a couple of major factors that uh, helped reduce the overall, you know, uh, overall market for comics. But um, maybe I'm being too harsh. Maybe the market just spread out among more, I don't know, more, more, more titles. I should so much more out there. You know, everything sells at a lower number. So, so I'm sure it's not as healthy of an industry in that regard as it used to be. That's true. Well, Bob, thank you so much for coming on the Paunch Stevenson show. We really appreciate and it. And for creating the Transformers. And for creating, oh yeah. I don't want to take too much credit for creating, don't, don't put that on me, okay? I, I was one of the hands involved in the development of the Transformers. I did not create the Transformers. <laughs> you, well, okay. you, you helped establish the Transformers yes. in America. I'll take, I'll accept that. Okay. I'll accept. And in fact, you know, while we're, while we're on the subject, I just want to add, the, the unsung creative hero of Transformers is Jim Shooter. You know, I, I don't know if you've read this in other interviews. Jim Shooter wrote the initial treatment to the Transformers that they're still using today to base all the movies on, et cetera, et cetera. He was the guy, and that was just part of his day job. He didn't get a dollar for it. Oh, man. No residuals. He didn't like to advertise the fact. He didn't talk about it much. And whenever somebody tries to put that credit on me, I say, Jim Shooter created the treatment. He wrote. He came up with the idea, the basic ideas that are still in circulation today. Is he bitter? Is he bitter? You have to ask Jim Shooter. <laughs> okay. He talked about it. He has a blog. He talked about it on his blog last year. He didn't sound bitter. He just said it's part of my, it. Was part of, he just he just looked at it as part of his job. You know, just part of his day job. So, but you could you could interview him. Ask him. <laughs> well, Bob, thanks again so much. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it was my pleasure. I enjoyed it, guys. Thanks, and have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. The Transformers will return after these messages. All right, I have a movie review. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever seen this. Mr. Holland's Opus. <laughs> what? With Richard Dreyfuss? You have a movie? You actually watched one of my movies? Richard Dreyfuss? Unfortunately. <laughs> Are you ready for my review? Oh, go ahead. Terrible. Oh. 
<laughs> what year? What was it? Nineteen ninety-five, I think. Yeah, somewhere around there. I know that's it's terrible. Oh my god, it just wouldn't end. Dreyfus is awful. You know, Dry. Did we talk about the Dreyfus? Did some like really cheesy, like made-for-DVD movie where he's he's playing. He's kind of playing the guy from that he was in Jaws, and there's like these killer like. It was maybe that was a Piranha movie. And, and he gets eaten or something? I don't remember. I don't think we mentioned it. Yeah, I don't know. The Rifeth. Uh, have you seen this? You know how on TV Rifeth. now there's there are singing competition shows. Oh, there's too many. Dancing competition shows. There's America's Got Talent, which is just any kind of competition show. Yeah. Well, now... See, they're running out of ideas again. So now... Oh, you know, there's like fashion competition shows, uh, Project Runway, and America's Next Top Model. Yeah, we know there is. So they're running out of ideas. Now, there is a musical chairs competition show. Now, see, that's something I would like to watch. What? I love musical chairs. Hosted by Jamie Kennedy. It's called Oh Sit. Oh, boy. And it's not musical just musical chairs. chairs. It's I was good at musical chairs. Well, it's not just musical chairs, yes. it's demolition musical chairs. Oh, that's even better! The music plays, and they don't just walk around the chairs until the music stops. They walk around, and they have to, like, like throw each other in pools of water <laughs> and hit each other with backs and stuff. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, I don't think it's going to last very long. No, probably not. That gets old. I can see that getting old very quickly. What <laughs> else? Um, Next. I had a movie, movie review, if you wanted to hear it. Sure. Um, sure I do. Alright, so I finally got to see uh, Underworld Awakening, which is the fourth Underworld movie. Kate Beckinsale. It was on Stars recently. Is, is Bill Nye in that? No. Is Bill Scott Nye. Speedman? Bill Nye was not in that movie. I was not in that movie. Whoa. Scott Speed. No, he wasn't in it. They had like a CGI version of him <laughs> in the beginning. It was really bad. Um, I, I was actually really surprised at how bad it was. Like I, I figured it was going to be like cheesy or something, but basically it was... Wait, was this released in theaters? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think oh. it did fairly well. Oh. Um, I, I, because I, the third one, which she wasn't in, um, that was like a prequel, was actually really good. Like Bill Nighy was in it, Michael Sheen was in it. Um, it was really good. And it was written by the guy, you know, who came up with them all. They should have, they should have gotten Michael McKeon to be in it. He got hit by the car, so. Oh, yeah. Can't act. Um. Uh, so, yeah, so um, I watched it, and basically it's just, it's just nonstop, just, it's like the Expendables. <laughs> just nonstop shooting, everybody shooting, it's just absolute, and the movie just like, is like over in like two seconds. I mean, it's just a disaster. Um, I think, even though Kate Beckinsale is still extremely beautiful, I think she had gotten a little bit... Either they didn't get the makeup right or something, but I think she had gotten a little bit too old. What? To, to, How old To play she? the uh, late 30s, I guess. Really? She's that old? 
probably mid or late thirties or something. But oh, man. Um, they they just didn't do the. Uh, you could have just done back. They didn't do the uh, the makeup very well, and she just looked old. Wow, she's thirty nine. I thought she was young. I mean, in real life, she looks like she's like perfect looking. I don't know why, in the, for whatever the reason, she just looked just she just looked old. And and obviously, a vampire doesn't age. Well, <laughs> so that looked a little stupid. Um, that re that really wasn't my biggest problem. Again, it was just there was no. It was an idiotic script. I mean, it was kind of like this Resident Evil kind of ripoff where they they killed all the vampires and werewolves, but like everybody was still like scared of them. It was just just awful. And um, I don't know. I just I was really really disappointed that it was that bad part, because part three, four. Oh, part four. four. I, I thought three was good. Oh, okay. All right, so it was three bad. was better than the second one, and and Len Wiseman, who you know created this this franchise. I mean, he co-wrote this one, um, and I think he co he co-wrote it with um, somebody else who's actually well known. She was also in the the remake of um, Total Recall recently, which I've heard is horrible. But I'll be back. I'll be back again. How dare they remake a movie without me in it? I'm on Mars, you idiot. Idiot. Uh, well, uh, yeah, so anyway. Um, oh, J. Michael Straczynski, who did Babylon 5. So they had him working on it. Along with, See, here's the problem. When it says story by two different people, screenplay by four different people, and directed by two people, <laughs> that's not good. That's yeah. Casino Royale, Royale <laughs> David Niven, Peter I'm Sellers. <laughs> what do you like? I'm James Bond I'm or something. Shaking not stayed. <laughs> Shaking not stayed. Don't point that gun at me. <laughs> I'm very scared. Um, so I, I was really disappointed that it was that bad. If you stir that, I swear to God, I'll I'll ask for a refund. Um. Anyway, so uh, yeah, I was really surprised that it was that bad. But I mean, it, it made double it doubled its budget somehow. I, I don't know how. I don't even think that I've heard of this. It was it was there. <laughs> I can't tell you. It was out. It came out came out nine months ago. I was gonna go see it. I just didn't, and then I was like, ah, oh, forget it. Um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, yeah, generally negative reviews from film critics. Ooh, boy. Rotten Tomatoes score 30%. Wait, look. It's usually not good. What? So? They, they kind of, like, cut and pasted Scott's speed. Oh, yeah, they put the CGI over somebody <laughs> else's body. I mean, that's what they did with, with, uh, um, what's his name? Uh, uh. Dr. Phil? No, Jeff Bridges in the Tron uh, movie. Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges. It's me. Yeah. So, uh, speaking of uh, dummy actors, um, Dr. Phil? Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> Apparently, he came out and said, I'm not kidding here, he was inspired by Steven Seagal. To get into all those fights in Canada? Well, maybe that too, but I guess acting. Wait, what? I'm not kidding. He must have said this because Steven Seagal broadcasted this all over Twitter, Facebook, oh, 
The whole internet Wait was bombarded with Steven Seagal saying that Shia LaBeouf was, an, it was inspired by him. First of all, Steven Seagal is probably just lying. No, no, no. I Second mean, of all, said it. Shia LaBeouf, we did a, several episodes ago, we did whatever happened to Shia LaBeouf. He's vanished. He dropped no. off the earth. He actually, well, Shia LaBeouf actually said that he's not doing any of these, like, big budget movies anymore. Why? I think Does he was just stink? embarrassed. I think they were, yeah, they were bad and he was just embarrassed by it. By what? Know. He's not going to do Transformers 5? No, he's not in the fourth one, no. Really? No. What about, uh, what's that woman's name? Uh, Megan Fox. Megan Fox. She wasn't even in the third one. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, so that, so uh, what do you think about that, Steven? <laughs> I think I think that's very sad of him to say that. All right, so I'm here not, I'm not I'm not gonna take him to the blood. No, I'm not gonna go to the blood bank. I'm gonna take him to the regular bank, the food bank. <laughs> um, so that's Steven Seagal, and somehow that inspired Shia LaBeouf no. to act like this. Now, wait a minute. So that means... I'm going to wake him up. That means you know what's in the works. I don't, I don't even want to think about a this. A direct-to-DVD, oh, no. Steven Seagal-produced, Steven Seagal-slash-Shia LaBeouf movie. Oh, no. With, with some rapper we've never heard of thrown uh, in there. Maybe that'll be under Siege 3. <laughs> Space Station. Space Station. He'll be his son. Yeah. <laughs> Casey, Ry be, Casey Ryback's son. Yeah, Steven Seagal will be training Shia LaBeouf how to be a cook. And they'll both get locked in the refrigerator in the space station. <laughs> that so, the Russians took over. So the other, the other idiot actor I was going to mention was um, Nicolas Cage, of course. <laughs> hey. Her. Hey, man. So apparently some... some I, I, I was going to be Superman, man. So this is how idiotic he is. Some... I didn't even know these still existed. There's apparently some kind of video store in Los Angeles that Nicolas Cage has been renting DVDs and not returning them. <laughs> what? Why is he renting hey, DVDs? Hey, man. Hey, man. I, oh. Someone has to buy all my movies on DVD. <laughs> He's renting them. Hey, man. Uh, uh, can, can, I get, uh, uh, can I get the Sorcerer's Apprentice on Laserdisc, the man? man. Oh, yeah. Can, can I get the Wicker Man? I'm on every copy you've got of the Wicker Man. Where, where's your, where's your, your selection of on VCDs? Betamax. <laughs> VCDs. <laughs> or, or C, you have any CEDs, man? Oh, God. Do you have Superman on CED? Lex Luthor? Hey, hey, you know I invested all my money in a patent for HD DVDs. Oh, no. Man. HD VHS. I thought that was I thought that was the wave of the future, man. You know, that didn't work. HD uh HD DVD. HD no, I know, but I'm thinking of something stupid. Like, Super VHS? No, or? like HD records or something. Uh, something stupid that only he would invest in. <laughs> Nicholas Cage. I'm I'm a vampire, man. <laughs> I know I already did this stupid style, but I have to repeat it because I saw it again. I'm I'm still seeing this. Whatever. The 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 girls and women, grown women wearing shorts that are so short. <laughs> 
that the front pockets dangle out from the bottom. Ah, the the, uh, the Daisy Dukes. Yeah, but Daisy Dukes didn't have pockets like sticking out the bottom of them. It's so white trash. It's just so ghetto. You know, it's stupid. Um, is that it for you? No, I had a question. I know I asked you this. I don't even know what episode this was, but I asked you about when something is on TV and they say, like, let's say that there's a news broadcast from New York City. And they say, okay, now we're going to go live via satellite to someone in Idaho. Yeah. Obviously, I understand via satellite. I get that. What I don't understand is, and maybe you can clarify this for me, the newscasters are in New York City. They say, now we go live via satellite to this person in Idaho. This person is in his house in Idaho. Yeah. How how does this person have a satellite hookup in his house? They go there with a truck. They're portable. So, so a newscaster in New York sends a truck all the way to Idaho? No, they get some local thing to do it. They just... Pay them to do it. Oh, all right. Duh. Well, th- that clears up my confusion. Mm-hmm. Now you know. No, but it's, I didn't know if the person in I Like, if they called up the guy and said, listen, no. go, go down to this station. No, they don't do that. They, I have seen news reports where they've, they've gotten the person on Skype, and it just oh. looks terrible. <laughs> Skype. All right, so thank you for clearing that up. Um, Tom Green. <laughs> oh, daddy? Tom Green is you know, he's a stand-up comedian now, so he has a special... Yeah, that was on like, did you see it? It was on like Showtime <clears throat> or something? I saw him on, I think it was on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. He did a few minutes of stand-up and it was not very good. I don't know if you noticed, I was watching this thing. He was basically doing an impersonation of Brian Regan. <laughs> he was like, well, you know, uh, you, you know, but it wasn't like complete like Brian Regan. Like, well, uh, the, the big yellow yeah. one is the sun. I said, uh, uh, you, I wanted a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But I'm not going to open two jars. Yeah, uh, so he was kind of like, he was kind of like, <laughs> I well, like I'll, uh, hurry, I'll, uh, I wanted some ham on my sandwich. <laughs> some ham. Uh. I'm like Brian Regan, who sounds like Jimmy Stewart. It's like but- I was... I was on this Celebrity Apprentice, the Celebrity Apprentice, uh, and I met a Donald Trump. Like, he talks in that very odd way. Yes, yeah, so like, Donald really. Donald Trump. And I said, hey, Mr. Trump, what's up with your hair? <laughs> and I'm like, Swedish. I'm just watching it. I'm just like, yeah, we get it. He has bad hair. Everybody knows that. Uh, what's up with Donald Trump's hair? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't that good. No. Um, I had uh, I was watching Pawn Stars, and you know how the people bring things in and they talk about the value and the history. Yeah. So on this particular episode, and, and sometimes the the people from the store go to a location because someone has a car or a cannon or something that's too big. So in this particular episode that I saw. A person called them up. They left the store, went to the person's house, and the person had an entire bedroom covered wall to wall with Generation One Transformer. Yeah, I think I saw that. 
And he wanted like a lot of money, and they're and like, not just, uh, yeah, not whatever. just a complete collection of Generation One Transformer toys. He had like triples and quadruples. <laughs> you know, he had like three Fortress yeah. Maximuses, uh. complete with the box, Optimus Primes. Power Master, Optimus Prime. Yeah. He had like four Megatrons, original Megatron. And would he price it out for like ten thousand dollars? And like, uh, we'll give you like three hundred. No, the guy wanted twenty grand uh. for everything. Rick's like, oh, you know, let me call a buddy of mine down. Of course. So he brings in that weird, like, fat toy yeah, collector toy guy. Yeah. He comes in, he talks, and he says, "I would, I would price this out between fifteen and twenty thousand. All right." So then Rick is like, well, you know, I'll give you five grand for yeah. everything. <laughs> and the guy's like, no. Like, all right, I'll give you six. No. I think maybe he went up to seven and the guy's just like, no. Yeah, I mean, he it, it's, yeah, it's the just having them, even that, even though they have a pretty big operation there, just there, the, the labor required to photograph everything and price it and sell it individually is just a waste of their time. Yeah. Just well, the guy had—he said he had more than one thousand pieces. I know it's insane. Characters it's, or whatever—it's totally insane. Uh, and what else? One last thing. Uh, uh, you know this new TV show on Comedy Central, The Burn, with Jeffrey Ross. Uh, I've heard of it. Yeah. Have you seen what Jeffrey Ross looks like recently? He, he looks—I know—he looks like <laughs> Bozo happened? the Clown. <laughs> what? They were talking about Anopi and Anthony. They're oh, just like, he just doesn't care. It's just, just doesn't care. And then, so I was watching him, and he looks ridiculous. He looks like Cotter. And, like what? Mr. Cotter. I know. He looks ridiculous. And he's making jokes about, like, like uh, you, you know, the, the whole premise is he's he's roasting... He's not just roasting one person. He's roasting like everyone who's in yeah. in the news that week. Yeah. But then it's like, you know, then he puts a picture of Stevie Wonder on the screen and he's like, you know, Stevie Wonder is so blind. He hasn't even seen blah 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 and he's like there's like 10 minutes of Stevie Wonder blind jokes. How is that relevant? Your mother is so fat. It's like, come on. But how like yes, we understand in the year 2012 Stevie Wonder's blind. Well, this is irrelevant. <laughs> they'll probably cancel it right away. The end. You're finally done. The end. I mean, no, but I'll be. I'll say I'm done. <laughs>